Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. This Oscar Sunday is a double whammy. Of course, it's a day to celebrate movies at the Academy Awards. But it's also the 75th birthday of longtime DC movie critic, my friend Arch Campbell. I caught up with Arch for a trip down movie memory lane. Enjoy. I'm here with one of my favorite guys in the world, <laughs> Arch Campbell. And I'm here with one of my favorite guys, Jason Fraley. <laughs> Literally, it's great to talk to you, yeah. always. I love talking to you because you know movies. And you came up and introduced yourself to me and said you used to watch me on TV. And I was, I was so uh, grateful. Uh, that uh, you and I have been friends ever since. It's rare. It's been a, a, what an odd couple. Are we? Are we Oscar and Felix or Oscar well, and Oscar? Because it's know, movies. I think we're uh, <laughs> we're sort of movie father and son. Oh, okay. Or maybe grandfather and father <laughs> now. People remember me from the eleven o'clock news on Channel Four because, and nobody realized it at the time, but we had complete program flow. You had Vance and Doreen doing the news, and then you had Bob Ryan doing the weather. Then you had George Michael. Then you went to me, and then we went into either Johnny Carson or Jay Leno. And so the thing uh, completely flowed from uh, the hard-edge news through the uh, weather to the sports. And to me, I was sort of the the punctuation mark at the end. You were the lead into Carson, though. Yeah. How does that feel? I mean, leading into Carson, all and this was at a time when more people watched local news too. They didn't have the internet and all this other stuff. So uh, it it was totally uh, random. Literally, I became a movie reviewer because I worked in a television newsroom in Dallas, and the news director came in one day, who and said, "I want a movie reviewer. Who wants to do it?" <laughs> And nobody did, so I raised my hand and I became the movie reviewer. Yeah. And at the, you know, in those days, the seventies, when I was in TV news to begin with, uh, you had to be a generalist. You had to be able to go out and do everything. There right. used to be a famous cartoon where uh, you're in a newsroom and there's a dartboard up there with education, government, <laughs> <laughs> crime. Yeah. Sports, you know, and you throw the dart, and yeah. wherever it lands, that's what you do that day. That's you how hit, I got you hit to be movies. The... Your dart hit movies, and I, I have made a, a point to always ask other reviewers how they got to be the movie reviewer, mm-hmm. and many of them from my age, uh, that's that's what it was. They were yeah. in a newsroom, and somebody said, "We need who wants to do the movies this week?" And yeah, I said, "Okay, fine." Judith Chris, that's her story. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Judith Christ used to be one of the people I really admired. Judith Christ and um, and of course Roger Ebert. Yeah. Now Ebert's story is different, but that's my story. I raised my hand. <laughs> Mine was a little bit different. Um, for me, it was it was the passing of Joe Barber. He passed right. away. What a sweet guy. Joe and Joe Barber was like a, a savant. I yeah. mean, he oh, was yeah. a walking encyclopedia. He knew more about the movies. He was he. Any question you had, he would answer. Yeah. Even we'd be sitting around waiting for a movie to start, and uh, uh, you know, I'd be sitting next to like uh, Jane Horowitz or mm-hmm. somebody, and we'd say, "What was that movie? What was it?" Joe would turn around and give us the answer, like just like that. Yeah. Wow. Joe had a famous segment on WTOP on Saturday mornings, where uh, they kind of let him uh, go wild, and he stayed here all Saturday morning. He was also a great friend to uh, Tony Kornheiser. Yeah. 
And uh, Kornheiser, for a while, did his show uh, from these studios, and Joe would wander over there. And uh, yeah, Joe is a great loss. It was a huge loss. I remember he would come on here. You know, they were there to talk about the new movie, and then a couple minutes he'd say, uh, "Well, let me tell you about the gunfight at the OK Corral." And, <laughs> but that, but that's when I, as a young guy in the newsroom, I would like uh-huh. perk up because these are the old movies that I would love. So I, I always had an affection for Joe, and it was sad that he's a young guy. What was he in his sixties? Probably when he passed. I yeah. think he was in his fifties. He was. Wow. He died uh, very young. Yeah. I grew to love the movies because of the time in which I grew up, and that those were the days. When television first came in, tell us, tell our listeners where you grew up. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Um, what what year were you born, if you don't mind? I was born in 1946. Woohoo! Best yeah. years of our lives. <laughs> it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life would play on television. And my father, who was a movie buff and who spent his depression years going to the movies because that's what people did. Yeah would say, okay, now, It's a Wonderful Life is coming on, and you need to watch that because that's a good movie. At the time, when television first started in the 40s and early 50s, um, they cut a deal with Hollywood where they would only show movies made before 1948. Interesting. So they were showing all the classics, the Frank Capra movies, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, uh, uh, Meet John Doe. Uh, they were showing the, the you know, you yeah, can't take I, it, it with you. It happened one night. It happened one night. All of those uh, were uh, were on television, the Hitchcock movies. And in the late 50s, uh, I learned from my friend. I made friends with Count Gore Duvall here in Washington. <laughs> You've seen him on his show. Man. <laughs> Count Gore, my dear friend. Universal Pictures in the late 50s put together a package that they sold to local television of horror films. It was, I think they called it the shock theater package. And uh, my station in San Antonio started shock theater in the middle 50s. First movie they showed was Frankenstein. My my father, my mother. The Boris Karloff one? The the original Frankenstein. We stayed up to watch Frankenstein. The next week was Dracula. The week after that was The Invisible Man. Then The Wolf Man which is one of my favorite films. And then, uh, and then you know, they just, and then The Son of Frankenstein and Dracula's Daughter yeah. and, and uh, all of those movies. I just, I loved watching them. And, uh, and that's how I learned to love the movies. So you fell in love with Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff <laughs> and all of those guys. Interesting. Uh, Claude, Rains Claude Rains is the Invisible was, Man. Yeah. Casablanca, Lon he's Chaney the Jr. best friend. Lon Chaney is yeah. the, as the Wolf Man. Yeah. Uh, Talk about an underrated actor, Claude Rains. Oh, he was man. in everything. <laughs> he, was, he was the greatest. He's yeah. in Notorious. Notorious. You know? Oh, yeah. What a great movie. The he, Hitchcock movie, Notorious. Uh, one of the underrated ones, I feel uh, like. One of my favorite lines in the movies is from Notorious. The mother says to Claude Rains, We are protected by the enormity of your stupidity. <laughs> My wife and I quote that there to each go. other all the time. I want that on my headstone. <laughs> and in my career, actually, I was protected by the enormity of my stupidity. <laughs> because when I finally got the movie deal on Channel 4, mm-hmm. I was not an expert. And I figured the only way I could last is by taking the average guy approach mm-hmm. and giving a clear message. And uh, that yeah. worked for me at that time. Now I think it's a different time. Now I think you need to be an expert and have probably a deeper background than I had. But 
But my background is watching uh, classic films on television mm. when I was growing up. And when I first came to Washington, uh, I had I had I got the movie deal down in Dallas, and I was reviewing in Dallas. I moved up here. I had joined the American Film Institute to get their magazine. I think <laughs> it was uh, American Film Magazine. Yeah. So I came to Washington. The AFI had a theater here in Kennedy Center. I would go to the AFI theater two to three nights a week uh, to watch the classics. They'd have a an Orson Welles festival. I was at the. They still a- do that AFI Silver, yeah. The there was there is a famous night among film buffs involving the AFI in I think 1975. They had a showing of the Lady from Shanghai, uh-huh. and uh, and we walked in and they're all they're excited and they whisper, "We've got a a nitrate print." nitrate print this is like a special nitrate print so we sit down to watch the lady from shanghai and the the famous scene the at mirrors. the end yeah, the is they're in the fun house and they're shooting at each other with the mirrors and um, the film goes to the last reel and uh the film skips and we're all in the afi and then uh the film melts from the inside oh, you know no. the frame yeah. stops and melts and then the theater goes dark, and I turn around, and you see the top reel catch <laughs> on fire. And they uh, they sounded the fire alarm. They opened the doors, and they evacuated the entire Kennedy Center <laughs> because the last reel of the lady from Shanghai had caught fire. Oh, no. <laughs> Was this before the mir- the mirror shootout or during? Yeah, I, n- I didn't s- get to see it. You didn't it. see I, the mirror shootout? <laughs> I went there because I wanted to see the famous mirror shootout yeah. scene. Didn't get to see it. It was but, like 20 years but later you've seen before the infamous theater it. fire scene. <laughs> uh, to show you how different times are, yeah. it was not reported in the news. Wow. You know, it would be breaking be news today. It'd be all on Twitter today. right now, yeah. Oh, my God. We'd you know, know, Kennedy Center, there's a fire at Kennedy Center. WTOP there. would be there. Nothing. Wow. Nobody said anything. That's wild. I want to move a. Let's uh, let's back it up a little bit. I want to. Okay. I would love to move a little more. Uh, let's <laughs> let's go chronological so I can keep it uh, all in my brain. Okay. Um. So you're born in '46. Born in 1946. Um, tell me, in in te- in Dallas or Austin? San Antonio, San Antonio Texas. Texas. Tell San me Antonio. what did what did your parents do? My uh, father was a salesman. He sold a lot of different things. My mother was. Uh, uh, she was a government worker. She moved to San Antonio to uh, uh, room with a friend who had moved to San Antonio uh, thinking she was engaged, and it turned out she wasn't. So my mother's friend wrote her uh. in Nashville and said, you've got to come here, and we've got to find husbands. <laughs> <laughs> wow. so my mother and father worked at Fort Sam Houston. They got married. Then my father became a salesman. Yeah. Uh, later in her life, she became a first grade teacher and yeah. taught the first grade for about twenty five years. Wow! Um, so that's that's their story. Growing up, did you do you remember them having favorite movies, either that they took you to or watched on TV? Or the one I re- the the movie uh, history I got was from my father because he loved the movies and had seen he had seen all of the horror movies, yeah. uh, Dracula, Frankenstein. Uh, uh, Dracula's yeah. Daughter, The Invisible Man, The Mummy. Yeah. What, what was your great... father's name? Meller Campbell. Meller? Meller. Meller Campbell. Meller right. Campbell. He took his mother's uh, maiden name. Okay. 
was his middle name. And your and mom's name was? Was Martha Campbell. Meller and Martha. Okay. Meller and Martha. Meller and Martha. I, You know, I got married to uh, Gina. Gina is my wife's name. And a friend uh, gave us a wedding card and said, don't cry for me, Arch and Gina. Arch and Gina. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, Meller and Martha. That's my great. father was the movie he buff. He was the movie buff. He was the movie buff. Loved going. And, and mostly uh, horror movies, those universal ones? Or? But also the Frank Capra movies, yeah. the uh, Hitchcock movies, the Orson Welles movies, uh, yeah. all of them. He, he would go to the movies two or three times a week when he was a young man yeah. uh, growing up. Do you remember the first one you ever went to with him? Uh, was Snow White. Really? Snow White. Yeah. And uh, the deal with the witch scared me. Oh, yeah. And then uh, we joined a swimming pool uh, on the campus of Incarnate Word University uh, filled with nuns in black habits. And the first time I saw a nun in a black habit, I said, oh, my God, it's a witch. <laughs> Hide the red apples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, no well, apples. So this must have been a re-release, right? Because it came out in 37. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so but I, I actually heard at the at, – I've read that at the Radio City Music Hall premiere uh-huh. – um, Kids had a similar reaction to the witch that you yeah. did. When the lights came up, they right. found that they had peed all over the city at Radio City. It was that yes. scary. Um, As they used to say, there wasn't a dry seat in the yeah. house. <laughs> but for different reasons. Snow White's a great movie after all these years. We In my neighborhood, we had the Woodlawn Theater, and I would actually bike up there and see what they were showing. So I... This is silly, but uh, I used to watch the Francis the Talking Mule oh, movies, a- <laughs> which are just, dis- you know, terrible now. I remember seeing Pal Joey oh, at yeah. the movies, you know, and I was like a yeah. kid, 10 yeah. years old. Whatever they were showing there, yeah. uh, I would go a- and see. We had a movie theater in downtown San Antonio that they have saved, the Majestic and the Majestic, one of the things about the Majestic is uh, the interior of it was this castle-like thing, right. you know, with... Uh, like a movie all, palace. It literally was a movie palace, opened in 1929. Yeah. The ceiling was fashioned to look like the sky. Wow. And uh, it closed for a while, and they renovated it and made it a, a performing arts place. And they asked people for their memories, and people in their memory thought it was an outdoor theater oh, wow. because of that the the sky above the majestic theater. It's like you're at a drive-in. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we did go to drive-ins. I remember going to drive-ins in high school to see Goldfinger. Oh, you saw I, Goldfinger at a drive-in? Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I, not not only that, I saw Goldfinger at a drive-in in a Nash Rambler. The kind where the seats <laughs> reclined into a bed. So there were like six of us in this car. It's we like a James Bond car. Yeah, yeah, your own gadgets. <laughs> you know? So all the seats went all the way back. And we had this a double bed oh, for wow. six of us. Wow. Yeah, that car. was 1964 was Goldfinger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the big movie for us was Psycho. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I give. I'm so jealous of you that you got to see that. And church, our church group went to see Psycho. <laughs> You at saw the, it with your church group? Yes, at the Texas Theater. Oh, my God. Downtown in San Antonio, which was another great movie palace, uh, yeah. which is lost, uh, yeah. but the facade is still there. Psycho, to me, I was I have a friend that works for the uh, AARP, and he asked me and Ann Hornaday to uh, pick a list of the 10 right. most important movies to baby boomers. Baby boomers and, yeah. of course, so we all agreed on The Graduate, mm-hmm. but... 
I picked The Godfather and American Graffiti, Mm -hmm. and I picked Psycho because Psycho was the first really mainstream horror film that played more, you know, it wasn't a drive-in movie. It wasn't a B movie. It was a mainstream. Yeah. And they locked the doors big after deal. it started. And there was all this hype. You can't tell the ending. And yeah. The documentary Truffaut Hitchcock, they got the tapes of the interviews that uh, Truffaut did with Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Truffaut and Hitchcock became close friends. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Truffaut Hitchcock book, the book is, was, yeah. that's like, you know, film that's school textbook the Bible. Nowadays. It yeah. is. It yeah. is. And so they got these tapes, and every now and then Hitchcock will talk about things he did, and then suddenly he'll he'll start veering into uh, uh, what's going through Jimmy Stewart's mind mm-hmm. in Vertigo, and then Hitchcock uh. in this documentary says, "Turn off the tape recorder." <laughs> <laughs> and what I want to know is, what did he say? But that movie a, is just amazing. That is the more you watch it. I mean, a lot of people I think weren't sure how to deal with it the first time. Around, right. I remember right. reading early reviews of it, and you know, people were complaining. Of, a, it's like an ambiguous ending, and it's dark. Yeah. But all, I remember reading something that they were worried of these awkward angles of ceilings, and they're like, it's too arty. But when you look back at it now, right. um, every time he tilts up to see a ceiling, it's because uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think he's foreshadowing what yeah. Jimmy's not seeing above yeah. the bell tower. You yeah. know, there's all yeah. these little clues, and as he's driving around San Francisco, there's constantly bell towers behind uh-huh. him. There's uh-huh. reds and greens stand for the immortal in the mortal world and there's just so much going on i love that movie we could talk forever but vertigo was a lost film you yeah. know it fell into copyright uh problems and uh, you couldn't see it for many years there was like so, four hitchcocks that were lost I vertigo believe. and rope and yeah. uh i forget uh, what the other two are i can't remember uh, if it was rear window or what were, what were the four lost ones but there were four or five that yeah. were lost and they had to do with cop but the, the yeah. big one was uh vertigo yeah. so i feel like once that came back out people took another look at it and now it's i think it's climbed to the top of sight I, and sound list of the many global people critics poll believe yeah. it is uh the uh, greatest yeah. movie ever made i see let's go into that what are some of, yeah what are some of your greatest now that i don't work all the time <laughs> and now that the uh, dvr has been invented yeah. i download a lot of films on turner classics yeah. and i love downloading uh, some of the Orson Welles material, yeah. especially uh, Citizen Kane. It's About every six months, I look at Citizen Kane again. Because every shot has a little symbolic idea going on. It's every amazing. Every time you look at it, you see something else. Yeah. And Not I, many movies. Most are superficial entertainment right. rides. This one repays every Citizen time. Citizen Kane really does belong uh, up toward the top. Mm-hmm. I also love Casablanca, and it's I can watch that uh, amazing every every time it's Probably on. the greatest, do you think, do you agree, the greatest script probably ever written? Oh, I mean, yeah. What were those guys having for breakfast? I mean, yeah. how many lines, you know, we'll always have Paris, and yeah, here's looking right. at you, kid, and I, was, I came all the here for the waters. There are no waters in Casablanca. I was misinformed, yeah, you that, know? Well, that's the, it's, everyone knows the famous, uh-huh. you know, play it again, yeah. Sam lines, yeah. and usual suspects and all that, but uh-huh. it, there's other ones that are like the little nuggets that you don't think of that you catch every other time. It's that, great. Actually, the line is play it, Sam. Play, play it, Sam. As, yeah. as time goes by. Yeah. And, uh, the Marx oh, Brothers God, changed that, that was, one. Yeah. That was so great. I was looking at Animal House the other day. Oh, yeah. Animal Crackers Animal the other crackers. day. The, the Marx Brothers uh, mm-hmm. Animal Crackers. I love that opening scene where they all sing and Marx comes out and uh, sings, hello, I must be going. And 
Uh, Margaret Dumont comes back. But if you leave, you'll spoil the party that I'm throwing. Man, he, the stuff he would say to Margaret Dumont. Oh, what what was the one? I think it was in Duck Soup. He says, I can see you bending over a hot stove, only I can't see the stove. <laughs> <laughs> he would just rip into her. Oh, and they claimed she never she never got a word of it. She never understood. Oh, man. You know, is, what is your favorite Marx Brothers movie? Do you have one? Oh, let's see. I think... Um, um, What's the one? Is it Duck Soup, where where they're in Fredonia? Fredonia, yeah. Duck Soup, Duck yeah. Soup, and du- Duck Soup is relevant to today. Oh, it's, you know, it's hilarious. This, there's this little country, and they invade yeah. it, and uh, you know, there are a lot of references to Duck Soup during some of the uh, more recent wars. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hail because... Fredonia. <laughs> and then, of course, in Night of the Opera, when they have the, the stateroom scene where they're all piling oh. in there, that's great. But And the mirror scene yeah. with Groucho and Harpo. That's Duck Soup, yeah. Harpo, uh, I read his biography. Harpo was a great intellectual. Really? You know he never what? talked. One of my uh, favorite movies, and I really would like to see it again, is Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. It uh, it was a biography of Dorothy Parker. Oh, okay. And the crowd she ran around with, which included Harpo Marx, yeah. Alexander Walcott, and yeah. uh, Robert Benchley, uh, and uh, and it was it was an independent film, little scene. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee, I believe, plays Dorothy Parker. Wow. And she recreated Dorothy Parker's voice, which was very uh, kind of Long Island, nasally East Coast, and a lot of people didn't like that at the time. But I just love that they recreated that time. I'm gonna have to check that out. Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. You never, you Mrs. never Parker see it. Mrs. Parker and the okay, Vicious it's Circle. It's one of those that uh, that sticks with. There me. you go. There's a hidden Arch Campbell gem right there. I love the Hitchcock stuff, me too. and I love the Orson Welles stuff. Yeah. And uh, do you have a favorite scene in Citizen Kane? Uh, you know, I love it when they go on the picnic. <laughs> We're going, I don't want to go on a picnic, Charlie. We're going on a picnic. And all the cars are creeping up there. And then the guy sings, uh, uh, that, that, uh, slow dirge like blues yeah. number. It must be love. Yeah. And the parrot is that screeching. Cockatoo or whatever. It yeah. wakes you up real quick. It's like. <laughs> God, what is what this? is going on? It's probably one of the more bizarre scenes in it. Yeah, for sure. Do you know? Now I have a story about Citizen Kane, and I want you to follow up on sure. this because uh, Frank Mankiewicz mm-hmm. lived in Washington, mm-hmm. and many many people know and love Frank Mankiewicz, mm-hmm. and I got to know him a little bit just from being around town. And one time I uh, interviewed him, and then we showed Citizen Kane, because Frank Mankiewicz's father was Herman, Herman. Mankiewicz. Joseph was uh, Frank's uncle. Okay. So his Joseph father, made All About Eve. Every, yeah, okay. Letter to an Unknown Woman. Wasn't that one? Uh, letter to Three letter Wives. To, uh, unknown Woman was Max Ophel's. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The letter to Three Wives. So Frank Mankiewicz's father wrote Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. When, when JFK opened... Oliver Stone came to town, and by this time, Frank Mankiewicz was uh, working for Hill and Knowlton. Mm. They decided they would promote uh, JFK by getting the Stokes Commission to release all the assassination tapes or huh. files. Okay. So uh, Mankiewicz's idea was to promote uh, JFK through the front page of the paper. Okay. Uh, so he had an opinion leader's dinner. 
for uh, Oliver Stone, and I was invited. Wow. So Stone would come. We, one table was salad. I think I was the salad table. One table was the main course. One table was dessert. And he would come and sit with us, and, you know, we yeah. talked and talked. And during the night, I had to go to the John. So uh, Frank's wife was there. She says, Arch, uh, have you ever uh, held an Oscar? I said, well, no, I haven't. She said, well, come in here. She goes over to a shelf. She says, uh, Frank's father, Herman, won this Oscar for writing the script of Citizen Kane. You held, and she you held hands this... me the Oscar for Citizen Kane. Are you kidding me? No. And where are uh, you? Or where how you're I, at there? You know, he he's in a beautiful condo over in Adams Morgan. Oh my god, and the uh, Oscar it was in Adams Morgan. Yes. Now I went back to talk to Frank <laughs> about that Oscar. And by incidentally, Oscars are heavy. That's crazy. I went back to talk to Frank about the Oscar, and they had um, sold it. Really? Like Jake LaMotta selling his belt? <laughs> yeah. When I interviewed him at the museum, I asked him to bring the Oscar, and he said he couldn't because of insurance uh, oh. uh, problems. So I think that's why they got rid of it. Maybe they sold it back to the Academy. I don't know. Ben Mankiewicz comes to town because he he introduces the films on Turner Classics. Yeah, him and, and one Robert of these Osmond. days, you will cross paths with him, and I want you to ask him for me what happened to the Oscar for Citizen Kane. Ooh, yeah, because it's a mystery would, now. Well, it's a mystery to me. Yeah, but Ben would know. Maybe he has it. I think they sold it. Interesting. I think that's what Frank told me later on. Okay. So. But the for a while the Oscar for the screenplay of Citizen Kane was, was on a shelf in Adam, a beautiful condominium in Adams, Adams Morgan. Morgan. That is amazing. Is that you great? can eat jumbo slice <laughs> pizza and hold the Citizen Kane Oscar. That's America. <laughs> oh, that is great. All right. Any what other what are, I don't know off just off the top of your head what are some of your other favorites? We've mentioned the Hitchcocks. We've mentioned Citizen Kane. You know it's people. It's a hard question. What's your favorite yeah, movie? Exactly. How there's do so you many, answer? There's so many great ones. You know, and you say, "Oh, it's the last one yeah. I saw." Well, no, yeah. it's not the last. I mean, one I, I saw. to me, it's like the the correct answer is probably it changes every week. It does. But, yes. But there's certain ones you circle back to. Some one of the movies made, I love I, the Godfather. Uh huh. And Godfather Two. Yeah. I, I, similar to Citizen Kane, I think every time I return to them, I find new stuff in the background. Godfather One and Two, actually, you can watch over and over and yeah. over again, and that is certainly um, you as know, a combined piece of work, it might yeah. be the greatest movie ever now, made. Did it's, you see that thing? Uh, uh, somebody was showing the Godfather epic. Where they put yeah. uh, one, two, and three together in chronological order. Re-edited, order. yeah. So it and, opens with the Ellis Island with Vito as yeah. a boy and then goes to... Yeah. And they added a few scenes that right. uh, that were outtakes. It was like nine hours yeah. worth. And I loved it. I loved watching it. I could I just, watch the whole nine hours. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I, I do, too. I noticed, did you... Um, and speaking of noticing new, new things every time um, you watch it... So everyone knows Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes, yeah, right? Everyone right, knows that scene right. where they show the fish, but... Exactly. I there Coppola's foreshadowing that stuff when the scene where he gets choked out in the bar. Uh -huh. Remember they yeah. stab him through the hand and then yeah. yeah, Coppola shoots it. There's fish patterns on the window when he shoots it, <laughs> or in part two where where Michael disowns Fredo before yeah. the famous yeah. kiss and everything. Yeah. But or no, it's after the famous kiss. Fredo's laying down at Lake Tahoe and there's like a in front of a big window. Uh. Um, uh, Michael walks in and uh. Michael stands and. 
there's there's they look like life preservers behind Michael uh-huh. out the uh-huh. out, out the window, but behind Fredo there's none, and it's like you're 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 done, Fredo. I, I, know I noticed it was new you, things. Fredo. Uh, yeah. I know it was you. You broke, you broke my, my heart. heart. It's one of the <laughs> one of the great, and it's like you're a the G- only guy I know who could say you broke my heart. Yeah. in unison with me, yeah. I love that. And and then he gives him the big <laughs> Judas to Jesus kiss uh-huh. of betrayal. Oh, yeah, it's, God. But even more heartbreaking is is prior to that. When they're out at the club and they're all drinking with a congressman, yeah, remember they're yeah, watching the yeah, show, yeah, and and yeah. Fredo just happens to let it slip that oh, old man Roth and Johnny uh-huh, Oliver, and you see uh-huh, on Michael's face, uh-huh, he just lowers uh-huh, his head uh-huh. and realizes what he has to do, and right. I just I, to me they might be my favorite, although I've many times I've said Vertigo as well, but but that's it is Shakespearean, uh, The Godfather, yeah. Yeah. it's Shakespearean, it, is. it really is, and it's and it's you know particularly it's Macbeth, yeah, well and just the notions of just the the fa- the the son becomes the father the father yeah, the son you yeah, know and i yeah. never wanted this for you but uh-huh. he, he ends uh-huh. up becoming even worse than the than his dad and then plus you have i mean this just the cast too i mean how you're going to have brando oh. pacino de niro yeah. in the second one khan duval and you know diane keaton at the time was really known as a comedian and uh, she has great range and she's you never think, oh, that's uh, Woody Allen's funny girlfriend. Now, looking back, the movies of the 70s, when you see the movies of the 70s, yeah. they blow me away. It's still my favorite period. One time I downloaded They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Yeah, yeah. I read it's considered uh, one of the greatest cinema examples of existentialism <laughs> there ever. And, and the way it ends... They would not do that today. I know. They would not they make that They pushed a movie lot today. of boundaries back then um, in, in ways that, that I think studio execs would get a hold of today and, and make them change it in, in, the, in the boardroom. That is the good thing about the independent film uh, movement. At least they, they will uh, they'll push yeah. things yeah. Um, as opposed to the commercial yeah. movies now. So that's your favorite period then is the 70s? To me, I'll, I remember there was that book – Easy Riders and Raging yeah. Bull, but to me it, it was a little bit earlier. I I sort of ca- I'd sort of cap it at I'd say sixty seven because uh-huh. that's Bonnie and Clyde, the, you know, yeah. in the heat of the night. All in the, those, heat, in the heat of the night, by the way, is real is an overlooked movie that had tremendous uh, impact at the mm-hmm. time and mm-hmm. is and is is plays as well today. As it did in 1967. Yeah, and they had to shoot it in Sparta, Illinois, yeah. instead of Sparta, yeah. Mississippi. Yeah. yeah, they were that far ahead. Norman Jewison. That's a, and so yeah, Sydney I would Porter. go with you. 67. Yeah. Through what the early what do you 80s? Think? Maybe. Well, 80 was Raging Bull. With I mean, there's been caveat. There's been a lot yeah. of great movies we love yeah. since, but right. we're we're not we're not knocking those movies. But we're saying we think the the cream of the crop. 67 to 80. Yeah, maybe, 80, maybe 80, yeah. you know, uh, when did Body Heat come out? 81. 81. Uh, sort I, of a double indemnity uh, thing yeah. to it, right? Oh, that's a great Love movie. Love double indemnity. Well, that's the thing. So I'm, we're saying right. this, but then actually when I stop and think, uh, a lot of the great movies we've mentioned were in the 40s as well. And, you know, so. When I was in Los Angeles, you should do this. I drove to Glendale to see the train station where yeah. he gets on the train in double indemnity yeah. just to see it. Just to see what it looks like. You mean like. where he jumps out onto the tracks? You and know, all, yeah. But, you know, the train comes in and he's yeah. on the crutches and he gets yeah. on the train there. Yeah. It's the Glendale uh, Amtrak station. Wow. It was the it was the Southern Pacific station uh, and at the time, and, and it's still there. got to do it. One of my and favorite movies, Double Indemnity. Also, I love the movie Being There. 
Oh, yeah. And I've watched that over and over and over. Now, time has not been... With um, Peter Sellers. Was, I think it was the last movie he shot. Might have been. Uh, it was it 79. Is, Time has not been kind to being there because yeah. now with the, the Internet and uh, the iPhone, mm -hmm. uh, so much information is available. Right. And uh, Peter Sellers' chance, the gardener, uh, is able to uh, come out of nowhere right. and uh, nobody have any information. That, they, right. You couldn't that, do it, yeah. That uh, interferes with uh, watching the movie today. Yeah. How about some other ones you like? I, I feel like I'm trying to think. We've had this conversation before. Oh, you're a big fan of Last Picture Show. Oh, it's a it's great another movie. One, another one from the 70s. 71. That they would not make today. Yeah. And I loved The Last Picture Show so much that I drove to Archer City, Texas, <laughs> just to look at it. I'm sensing a, a theme. Uh, <laughs> you, you go visit these uh, movies. The, I just locations. I want to see these locations. I yeah. really do. I had a friend who lived in L.A. who worked for Warner Brothers for a while, and he was a movie uh, nut. And uh, he was going to take me to the to the stairs that Laurel and Hardy are pulling the piano up. Oh God! In, in, yeah. Uh, what's what is that? Uh, the piano. Uh, the music box. No. The music, the music box. box. Yeah. The music box. I don't know how I pulled that one. <laughs> That's <laughs> like the early 30s. Very yeah. nice. Good Very stuff. Very nice. Laurel great and Hardy stuff. were great, too. No, I mean, I kind of did the same thing when I was out for the covering the Oscars. Drove to the street where the final uh -huh. shot in, uh -huh. in Chinatown, you yeah. know. Oh, another one of my favorite movies where, you know, Jack Nicholson is out there on the oh, street. And, and that's from our period. That's from uh, oh, yeah. 73, I think, or 74. I think 74. it was 74. 74. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was... It was uh, I think it might have won the script for Robert Town, but it, right. it lost because it was Godfather 2. So, yeah. I mean, when a movie like Chinatown doesn't win Best Picture, that's when you know you're in a good era because And the then, you know, they did a sequel and it never yeah. came as close the two as Jakes, uh, Chinatown. Right? Yeah. 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 Town yeah. directed the sequel, I believe. I yeah. think so, yeah. I but. think, and, and I mean, his personal life is a whole different story, but Polanski's movies, at least like Rosemary's Baby, Chinatown, oh, are amazing to me. I have never been as frightened as I was after watching Rosemary's Baby. And they never show you. Exactly. That's why is, it's great. Which is scarier. A lot of people hold up the slasher movies yeah, and, you know, yeah. Freddy Krueger's and whatever, yeah, fine yeah, and great. Yeah, but, like, yeah. Rosemary's Baby hits you on a psychological level. Mm -hmm. And, again, another mm -hmm. one where you notice mm -hmm. things the more you watch it. And Ruth Gordon in that movie. Oh, <laughs> as man. the neighbor, Minnie Kastovitz. And she won. She did. She won, she won the, for that. The Oscar for that. Yeah, and her she won speech for that. was. This is such an encouraging development. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because well, she and Garson Kanan. Like Eighty-five. Or they wrote. Something. Remember, they were writers. They yeah, wrote Adam's yeah. Rib. I mourn the commercial nature of the majority of movies today. Yeah. I mourn too safe. that they're so safe, too prepackaged. They're like uh, you know they're. They're marketing-oriented. Yeah. They're yeah. Uh, focus-grouped. Right. Uh, Based a, on an existing product, and you don't want to rock the boat too much because you want to make sure there's a sequel. And, and a yeah. focus group can't tell you what yeah. they'll like. Exactly. People can't tell you what they're going to like until they, they see, see it. it. Yeah. And and yet, uh, movies, too many movies are being based on what they think people will like. I agree. Uh, I mourn that. You know, another one in the Renaissance, All the President's Men. Great movie. Also from the Another Renaissance. One from that. Yeah. And uh, plays as well today as it did back then. Yeah. And reminded me of Spotlight. Yeah. Or uh, vice versa. So <laughs> as much as I like Spotlight, I felt like 
we'd already seen it with all the president's men. I love Spotlight, um, and and definitely, I thought it was a great movie. But yeah, I mean, when everyone wrote those reviews, they were comparing it to all the president's men. I'm Bradley Trainer, and I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like this: A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Let's go like more in the in the Arch Campbell, this is your life category. <laughs> so you told me, you know, oh, you're growing brother. up, you're growing up in San Antonio. You started working at, what was the, the TV station where you raised your hand and said, I'll review movies? I grew up in San Antonio. I had, uh, I took a speech class as a senior in high school and I had a, uh, a, a driven drama teacher who got a hold of me and said, okay, kid. I want you to MC our talent show. So I went out as the MC. I'd never been on stage before. And uh, it was the first time I was really treated as an adult. I'd get together with uh, this drama teacher, Jean Longworth is her name. We'd get together at first period, me and about 10 other people, and we wrote the script for the show. Mm-hmm. So we'd bat around ideas. Uh, she, you know, she would get out a, a mimeograph thing. She starts typing, you know, the thing. Uh, I got carte blanche to do uh, bad jokes between acts, uh, and and it hooked me. And I followed her to a junior college, San Antonio College, where she started a public radio station. And she was she had a lot of anger because I, because she was discriminated against as a woman. If she were alive today, mm-hmm. I think she'd be running a studio or a network uh, or something like that. She yeah. was that much of a dynamo. What she did do is she uh, left a legacy of a public radio station in San Antonio, KSYM, and it's an alternative music station now. And I stayed in touch with her my entire life. She got me interested in radio. Mm. From radio... I was working at a station, WFAA, in Dallas, and I was able to uh, get into television news there. And in Dallas, my niche was an old guy, uh, a famous, a well-known news guy named Bert Shipp, took me aside. Bert Shipp's camera is in the uh, Assassination Museum because he covered the Kennedy assassination. He, uh, one of his stories is uh, he got a cameraman in the sixth floor building after the shooting. At the book depository? And the guy is up there on the sixth floor, and Bert is down on the ground, and the guy unloads his camera, wraps up the the film, and throws it down six floors to Bert, who catches it. Oh, my God. Runs it over to the processor. Wow. That, what a day that was. Well, I know a lot of people's careers start. Bob Schieffer started that. I think he drove Lee Harvey's mom he, yes. to the news Lee sta- Harvey's the mom station. called him. He took the call, wow. went over, and picked her up. Wow. Uh, okay, well, tell me so, about when you— uh, Bert yeah. Shipp takes me aside. He says, look, everybody in this newsroom can cover a wreck or a fire. He says, if you can do a feature story, you can find a niche for yourself. So I became the feature reporter on the TV station, on Channel 8 News in Dallas. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, that's when uh, we got a new news director, a famous guy named Marty Haig, who is now considered um, possibly one of the greatest uh, local news directors who ever worked. He's no longer alive. He's the one. He would come in every morning and scream at us because we were all about (laughs) 26, 27. We were in there smoking cigarettes. You know, everybody's smoking and throwing things at each other and, and misbehaving. And uh, he would scream at us, do this, do that, do this. And then one morning he screamed, I want a movie reviewer. Who wants to do it? As I think about it over the years, I think he knew that I wanted to do it. He had a hunch. I think he knew that I was the guy to do it. But he opened the door for me. Were you wearing the fedora at the time? I was not wearing the fedora (laughs) because I had a massive head of hair (laughs) over my collar. (laughs) He still does under that hat. No, no, I have the memory of it. Um, And and that's how I got into movie review. Okay, so you raised your hand and you started doing it. Do you remember the the first one you had to go review? Yes. the The very first movie I ever reviewed was American Graffiti. Oh, my and God. It's one of That's the a movies. good one out of the box. It is one of the movies that I picked for the 10 most important for baby boomers because they made it. It was only seven or eight years past the period yeah. of the 60s, mm-hmm. but it identified that period as yeah. something very important, the time right before the Beatles right. and right before the Vietnam War. Well, it's set and in '62, right? Where, yeah. where were you where in '62? Yeah. So, and it was, it was it was came out in '73, eleven years yeah. later. Yeah. Now, today in 2016, you wouldn't make a movie about 2005, right. I don't think. Right. But that period was so important, and Lucas. Well, yeah, boyhood. Got, <laughs> well, <laughs> but yeah, I know what you're saying. Lucas got that that time was so important, mm-hmm. and that the music was so big. Yeah. And I think it was one of the first movies to really right. showcase uh, right. popular music of the time. Like a wall-to-wall It was wall like soundtrack. a character yeah. in, the, in the thing. It launched so many careers. Richard uh, Dreyfuss, Harrison Ford, Ron Howard. <laughs> Let's not Ronnie forget. Howard. Yeah. Wow. It got that cars were so important in yeah. those days. Yeah. I mean, you're going to make a movie where everybody drives a 2005 Acura. Right. <laughs> now, Wolf no, Man I Jack don't think so. Jack got that, the radio thing. Right. And it was all, what was cool, it was there was no, and I remember Lucas was, had said this about that he had a hard time getting made because there was no quote-unquote plot. It was one yeah. night following a group of high school, or I guess it was their right night before they go to yeah. leaves for college, yeah. right? And, and then he updated the characters at the end, and I think right. that was the first movie. You yeah. know, now you see uh, afterwards it's all the time. Now, yeah. But that was the first one, and people actually sat there and right. sat through the credits, yeah. uh, you know, to get the update yeah. on the characters. And that, you of course, kn- enabled Star Wars and, and Indiana Jones and everything else he's had his hand in. So One of my favorite things to do now when I go to the movies, not, all those years I was on Channel 4 especially, I was in a hurry. I'd sit in the back, and as soon as the movie was over, I'd, I'd be out like a, like a, like a light. Yeah. Uh, to get back to the station to go on because I immediately yeah. went on the air. One of the things I really love doing now is sitting there watching the credits. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes I will be the last to leave the theater just to let it sink in. You you ruminate on on the the power of the of just, the movie, the message yeah, of the movie while you're just, sitting there. Uh, you know, it's like uh, you know, I, I, and I want to see the cast. I want right. to read the names of the cast, and and if it's a movie I really love. 
I just I just love sitting there. Uh, Soak it in a little yeah. longer. That's yeah. good advice. Yeah. A lot of people, including myself, will bolt and start writing the review. I don't have to anymore. I'll take so. that. <laughs> how did you get? How did you land the job at, at Four after working down in San Antonio? I worked with a uh, another really great newsman named Don Harris, and he was the anchor man at the station in Dallas. Don Harris went to uh, KNBC in Los Angeles. I started sending tapes out, trying to get a job. I was trying to get into Chicago, New York, right. L.A. I really wanted to go to L.A. And uh, Don Harris um, recommended me to a guy from L.A. who was coming to Channel 4 named Bruce McDonald. Uh, and that is what got me on his radar. I sent him a tape, and he hired me over the phone. Don Harris uh, is well-known in broadcast history because he was the reporter at Jonestown and died in the Jonestown Massacre. Wow. And one of the things, I never laugh at the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, because of my friend Don Harris, and he's the reason I'm here, and he was a... Wow, he, they did the an reason, amazing documentary on that recently. What was it, the Jonestown legend of the... The cameraman the survived, yeah. and so the film survived, and the cameraman had great issues wow. with the fact that he survived and so many other people like Survivor's uh, guilt, yeah. Wow. Um, but anyway, he but gave you... Yeah. It's, it's Don Harris is who got me here. Uh, Bruce McDonald said, I, I don't want a movie reviewer. I want you to do features. And I did a lot of really unusual... Uh, semi-outrageous things at Channel 4, <laughs> four, four. including um, my boss read a story about um, miniature pigs that had been developed <laughs> for the for the uh, agriculture department to do tests on. Or maybe, maybe it was the, the NRH, I don't know, so, NIH. Somebody had developed these miniature <laughs> pigs, and then they decided, nah, nah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna use them. So they had these pigs they needed to get rid of, and he said, well, you should get one and raise it as a pet, and we'll do stories on it. Yeah. So I got this little pig, and I raised it in my house. Pigs are very clean, <laughs> so I put it in one corner of uh, a room in the basement, and then I put newspaper in the other corner. I would feed him on one corner. He would, uh, he, I paper trained him. <laughs> I'd go into the other corner. I could, I could uh, put him on a leash, and uh, I named him Spot. And I did all these stories about Spot the Pig. <laughs> and there was a, a, an event here, the Solo Singing Dog Contest. Wow. And I took Spot the Pig to the Solo Singing Dog Contest because you you know, entered, he looked like a little dog. You entered the pig? Yeah. It's like and Babe. All you had That'll to do, do is pick him up and yeah. he would squeal. So I sang a chorus of Am I Blue? <laughs> Am I Blue? And then I would yeah. pick him up. He would go, ah! <laughs> Am I blue? And then pick him up. Uh, and I got on the CBS News that night That's nationally. Great. Wow. I got on the ABC News wow. nationally. I was all over town. Wow. I had a, uh, my competition was Henry Tannenbaum on Channel 9, mm-hmm. who was a brilliant, talented feature guy. Yeah. He was there. He saw that. He said, he went back and said, I got nothing. We got, you know, we got scooped. We beat, we can't run anything. Can't beat the singing. We pig can't do this. Uh, and the the singing pig finally, I had to give away, and I took him out to this uh, 
country, the Preston Country Club for Pets. It's out on Route 29. And I let him go, and we filmed him in uh, slow motion and put Born Free <laughs> under it. The pig is loping out there. Oh, that's good. So I was in uh, kind of the wilderness for four or five years. And um, I'm going to give you the long version of this story Fine if you with want me. it. Let's hear it. Nobody wanted to do the cut-ins, the morning cut-ins during the Today Show, because you had to get up early, and then you had to go out and be a reporter. So it was a killer schedule. It was 12 hours a day. So I I went in and I said, I want to do the cut-ins, because I was trying to get my career going anyway, somehow, doing anything. So I started going in, doing the early morning news on Channel 4 before the Today Show and then during the Today Show. And uh, there was a massive snowstorm, the snowstorm of George Washington's birthday, 1979. Okay. And it still ranks, its high, its rank is higher than the one we had this winter. Wow. And it was in 79s, so it was before there was really uh, state-of-the-art weather forecasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't know it was coming. So I got in at 5 a.m. A couple or three other people got in at 5 a.m. We were working there. Starts snowing and snowing and snowing. And this, the snowstorm started about yeah. 4.30. Okay. And nobody could get to work. Oh. We were the only people in there. Uh. So that evening, the weekend weather guy, is a, I hope he doesn't, I'm going to tell this, Paul Anthony, lived a couple of miles away, and he walked into Channel 4 to do the weather because Willard was the weatherman, right. and Willard got... lived uh, way out um, in Paris, Virginia, and couldn't yeah. get in. So Paul created all this stuff, and he had all this explanation for the weather. And uh, and that night the news started, and it came time for the weather, and they called up Willard. Willard started laughing, telling jokes, and Willard went, on for five minutes, mm-hmm. ten minutes, and Paul Anthony never got on the air, and wow. it infuriated him. So he yeah. went in and he quit. Wow. He resigned on the spot. <laughs> so the next day I'm in there doing the early morning news. The news director comes in, another wacky guy named Dave Newell. He says, Arch, have you ever done the weather? I had done it once, yeah. but I said, Oh, yeah, All sure, the time. sure. He says, fine, you're the weekend weatherman. <laughs> I started doing the weather on the weekend. They started wow. seeing me on camera. And uh, at the end of the 80s, Willard Scott left Channel 4. Mm-hmm. They had tried to hire Gordon Peterson away from Channel 9, mm-hmm. and that didn't work. Sue Simmons was on Channel 4, the famous New York anchor. She left. All the big names left, and the station was basically in the position of starting over. Yeah. And uh, I had kept going into Newell saying, I used to review movies. I want to review movies. So finally he says, okay, let's try it. So I went out and reviewed, I think I reviewed um, American Gigolo. Oh, okay. And Vance liked the review. Vance thought it was cool that we were in a review movies right. and that I was going to do it. So Vance kind of supported me. Oh, okay. And, uh, and that's how I got started. And in 1980, as I started reviewing movies, uh, they hired Bob Ryan. Bob came to take Willard's place, and they hired George Michael. Wow. And so suddenly me and Bob and George and Vance worked together on the 11 o'clock news for 
26 years. And a new era was born right in 1980, right there. And I don't think it'll ever happen again because I don't think you will ever put together a team and yeah. that that team will stay yeah. a different time. as long different as time. we did. Now people, you know, yeah. things change, people move. Yeah. Uh, but that was one of the secrets of Channel 4, that we were all there so long. Yeah. Talk about sort of the secret um, when you approach each of those reviews for the, for the nightly cast. Because you know that you had, like we said earlier, there's a lot of eyeballs there. You're leading right, into Carson right. for God's and sake. And not only did I have a big audience, but I also had to keep those four guys interested. Right. Vance, George, and Bob. And if I lost them, yeah. uh, I was lost. Uh, Vance went through several partners. Uh, he had a great partner, Dave Marish, and then uh, Doreen. And once Doreen came, everything really gelled. Yeah. But I had to keep their attention. I had to. I, so really, right. they were your test. Yeah, I was were, playing yeah. to those people. And right. when I would write a review, I would think, "How am I going? How am I going to get this over to Vance? How am I going to get this across to George Michael? Right. How am I going to keep their attention without them uh, throwing things at me? How am and, I going to keep now, Doreen?" Is the has always been the nicest uh, of those people, and she was always supportive. But the thing was, how do you how do you keep their attention? If you could win them over, you'd win over the, the viewers. Then. And okay. you know, and I did theater as well as uh, movies and yeah. stories yeah. too. But yeah. uh, I was always happy that I could put uh, theater reviews on the air. Yeah, and I and in the eighties because downtown, you know. You had the riots in Washington in 1968, and then you had uh, the building of the Metro, mm -hmm. which tore up downtown. Downtown looked like a war zone for years because they were digging the Metro. Mm -hmm. And by the time they finished, there was uh, downtown was almost a uh, wasteland. Empty stores, empty places, mm -hmm. empty lots. And because there was so much empty space... That paved the way for so many small theater companies ah, to come gotcha. in because the space was there. It was right. empty. You know, the Landsberg uh, department store uh, was sitting there empty. They, you know, they had a, a, a place, D.C. space, I think. They did little cabaret shows. Mm -hmm. Woolly Mammoth and The Source started up on 14th Street. You mm -hmm. go over to 14th Street to park, the street was empty. Wow. You could park on either side of it. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, that's, that spawned the theater movement, and I was around to uh, cover that. So, I, you know, I'm grateful for that. That's great. That's what I've, and, and part of my gig doing it here, it's been one of the most rewarding things is, yeah. is doing all yeah. the shows. And you, for, you, I guess maybe people that aren't down here don't really realize it, that it's how rich it is. You have Kennedy Center, right. National Theater, Warner Theater, Arena Stage, Roundhouse Theater. There's the one over in Shirlington, um, Signature Theater. There's well, all over the place. Signature is terrific. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and then there's, there's Woolly Mammoth and the yep. studio. Not to mention Ford's Theater. About every three years, I'd go over to Ford's Theater because they would, uh, Frankie Hewitt, who was um, Don Hewitt's wife, ex-wife, mm -hmm. uh, renovated Ford's Theater and got it up and running again. It was empty for years. And she put uh, authentic chairs in it. Everybody complained about the chairs at Ford's <laughs> Theater. God, that thing is uh, uncomfortable. So about every three years, they'd change the chairs. One, and one time, Tip O'Neill actually got, I think, some of the grant 
to put more comfortable chairs <laughs> with cushions in Ford's theater. Uh, that's hilarious. Yeah. You you said something really interesting earlier that I want to come back to now. That sort of when, when you're approaching it, you were saying how you wanted to sort of review for the average Joe, which right. I think is important. I think yeah. too many times, I mean, I feel like critics, I don't want to maybe not say we get a bad rap because maybe there's a lot of kernels of truth in there. A lot of times you feel that you'll find some critics that seem to talk down to, to listeners or readers or seem to kind of cross a little... Snobby. I went to film uh-huh. school. I know, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so tell me about, you know, the importance of, and I'm sure we, we both have tried to do this so long, some better than others, but, you know, combining sort of our our knowledge base, our deep knowledge, right. but also right. talking and passion. like an, and passion. Right. Um, but just talking to, you know, colloquially. Well, I was in television. Conversationally. And so in television, we, you know, I had a minute. And change a minute, yeah. minute first was minute thirty, then a minute fifteen, then a minute five. So you had to, you had to compress everything. Mm-hmm. You had to get a clear message across. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the eighties and nineties, and even now, there are uh, there are a lot of really smart intellectual critics mm-hmm. working for sure. In the 80s, uh, I remember when Gary Arnold interviewed. Uh, Gary Arnold was the reviewer for the Washington Post, and he reviewed The Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. And they gave him the front half of the style section and then an entire page oh, wow. on the inside. I mean, he wrote an, a treatise right. on The Empire Strikes <laughs> Back. He loved that movie. So did I, by right. the way. Uh, and the Washington Post has brought um, so many talented people to those pages. Rita Kempley, I love... Rita Kempley is one of the writers who uh, had the, uh, you know, great humor. She had the humor of Dorothy Parker. She (laughs) had a a common touch, but she also had great uh, depth of knowledge. Paul Atanasio went on uh, to uh, write screenplays, uh, but he was the reviewer at the Washington Post. And Stephen Hunter... It's just one of the greatest writers I've yeah. ever read. And yeah. now Anne Hornaday, I think Anne Hornaday is the voice for movies in Washington because not only does she review, but she also takes on um, issues or yeah. um, uh, trends. Yeah. Um, you know, the the end of the romantic comedy yeah. or the... Uh, you know, the challenge for the romantic comedy. She's a great writer. We have she her on really COP is. all the time, too. I, yeah. You know, I think I think the world of her. Yeah. So given that, yeah. I would need to occupy a different position. Right. And um, carve out your own niche. I wanted to sound like the guy who'd just come out of the theater, and very often I was because right. I had just gotten back, right. who was, and I wanted to be the guy who said, this is good, go see it. Right. That's a different stance than someone writing, a, you know, a treatise, right. criticism. So I always thought I was a reviewer, and uh, some of the people I admired the most were doing criticism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And is it possible to sort of have a little bit of a, a balance to that? If you had advice for other people coming up, you know, that want to be reviewers, do they have to pick one or the other, or is there a way to... I like A.O. Scott in yeah. the uh, New York Times a lot, and yeah. I think he uh, uh, satisfies both mm-hmm. areas. I yeah. think he's awfully good. Yeah. I like him. I loved uh, Roger Ebert's reviews. He's great. Especially 
toward the end, once he got, uh, once he lost his voice, mm-hmm. ironically, I think his writing got better. Yeah, uh, he was a beautiful writer. He was great. Uh, I like his website too. I like the people that write for his website. Yeah, I remember uh, towards the end he made that whole his whole his website had a you know had a, a great movies section where yeah, he would go back yeah. and and do a new review on Those on on the great ones. Yeah, yeah, he he was fantastic. Man, talk about a guy that spanned you know from from starting as a newspaper writer to him and Siskel and Ebert on TV, which was like sort of your era at right. four, and then even made it onto the the web too. Um, Interestingly, they never were able to replicate Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, they never could get uh, two people together, and I think it's because Siskel and Ebert really didn't like each other. They were they going really at it. They really were competitors. Yeah, and they really, uh, you know, they had no use for each other. Yeah, and they really disagreed, and it was great. Yeah. It's like us, man. Campbell and yeah. Fraley. We, no, I don't, we actually get along. We get along. We're great we friends. Like and I love talking to you. Yeah. We didn't mention your time at, at Channel 7, right? So after 4, you went to 7. and 32 years at Channel 4 yeah. and uh, really broke my heart to leave. Yeah. Uh, but I had to leave. And when people see me, uh, some people think I'm still on there. <laughs> and, you know, then the, that sadness was uh, amplified when George Michael died not yeah. long uh, after that. George left and then Bob left. And and uh, th- they do a great job, but it's a completely different era mm-hmm. at Channel 4. Uh, Channel 7 was nice enough to hire me, so uh, they extended my time on TV another eight years. Uh, and... and uh, they were so nice to me at Channel 7. They gave me a little office, you know, and people would come in and visit, and, you know, <laughs> what, what's it like? And I, I kind of became, uh, you know, the, uh, the wise, uh, the oldest member. <laughs> <laughs> the sage like advice, yeah. P.G. Woodhouse's <laughs> oldest member. Yeah. And I inherited an entertainment show at Channel 8, and I'd been reviewing movies so long that I was kind of tired of being the reviewer. Right. And I was able to take that show and bring other reviewers on. Right. which uh, And then I was able to bring actors on. Yeah. And I was sort of able to, uh, to turn that forum over to other people and still get the information out. Yeah. Uh, and, and the show I did on Channel 8, which also let me do... Uh, a bit of comedy, yeah. which is really Angus, Lam- thing. Angus, Angus Lamont, Lamont. Man, he's Angus is this Lamont, a real guy or is this is your a fic- real guy? Really? He gets a, a shout. <laughs> he gets a shout out every show, or did because I would make up letters <laughs> <laughs> they would bring in, and uh, and that is probably the most fun I ever had. Yeah, I, bet. I had a show on Channel Four after Saturday Night Live yeah. during the eighties. Was it syndicated? It was National a local or? show, okay. and uh, it really got pretty good ratings. And then uh, was that N- called the Arch Campbell Show as well? The Arch Campbell Show. Uh, NBC brought uh, Showtime at the Apollo in, so that ran after Saturday Night Live, and they ran this local show of mine at one a.m. Uh, and it still got ratings wow. because people, I think, were out of their minds if they were yeah. watching TV then. And I took some of the things I learned there and put them on the little Channel Eight show. And the the show I did the last uh, three years, I worked yeah. at seven and eight, which are together, 
was the most fun I ever had. Really? And the most satisfying I ever had. It was, let me tell you, I had a blast coming on there. It was so much fun. Because it was it was sort of that laid back, you know, we were going to uh-huh, give you good uh-huh. insights in the movies, yeah, but it was yeah. also so much fun. And the jokes, reading your jokes that you had for us, we didn't know what was going to be in that envelope, but you knew it was going to be something that was going to make you laugh. And I liked uh, the off off screen laughter, mm-hmm. you know, and I think it made it more intimate. Yeah, that it was sort of like, I mean, you know, it looked like a cable access show. There were hardly yeah. any, uh, not many visuals to it. Yeah, one of the things that happened is we would start out, and the first guest would be. In front, we started doing that show. I started asking the director if we could pretty much just do it in front of a green screen, right? And then just screw around with the background, right? So, uh, Dave Barry came in, and we would start, and the first guest would be in front of a green screen, and I'd be over there, and they'd have a double box like Nightline used to do, yeah. And uh, then I started referring to this expensive remote. We had arranged, and you know, it wasn't a remote. We were right, in, and everybody knew I was pulling their leg. Dave Barry is there. He says, uh, I start talking about the expensive remote, and I think we made it look like either he was at Kennedy Center or in Miami. Yeah. And uh, we started talking, and uh, I don't know, I kind of got a hair uh, in my behind, and I got out of my box while they stayed on the double box and walked over there into his box to show him how to do it. And he walked out of his box and walked over to where I was and got in my box. So we traded places (laughs) on the remote. Oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) And uh, I loved that moment. So that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. What are you up to these days? I uh, take classes at the Writers' Center in Bethesda, Mm -hmm. and I'm doing some writing. I can be the announcer on your podcast. Okay. And now, here's Jason Fraley. <laughs> uh, and Jason, there's Arch Campbell. A viewer, uh, Angus Ang- Wan, writes, Jason, <laughs> he wants to know, <laughs> what's your favorite movie? That's actually not a bad idea. We get old Angus and you on. I love it. I love it. And you mentioned writing. Um, you're talking at the Writing Center. You're, you're yeah. talking about writing Plays for the stage, or what do we got going on? Oh, is there anything we're allowed to share yet, or is it still in? Not, I had a great idea for a play, yeah. but we couldn't quite uh, make it uh, work. I uh, I went back to San Antonio, and uh, my mother lived in the same house for forty five years, and I lived in I knew her in that house from when I was five until I was fifty. And the people who bought it have been there 20 years, and they invited me back to visit. This is recently? Recently. And I'm trying to make sense of that on the page. Uh, It was really awesome. I walked up to the guy. I said, I am the ghost of West Mistletoe Street. (laughs) And he laughed. And as I think about it, I realize the neighborhood and the house I am one of the ghosts of ah, West Mistletoe Street. Ah, I like it. I want to see where this so, goes here, sir. And, you know, the ghosts are friendly. They're friendly ghosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think my father and mother are still in that house. Really? Yeah. There you go. And he's, uh, that's perfect. Bring it full circle. He's still watching uh, Frankenstein movies, The Ghost of the right. Father. <laughs> there he is. It's a Wonderful Life is playing uh, on a wall somewhere there in ghostly form. 
Well, I think that's the perfect way to end it. We just came full circle. I love the fact, I love seeing more people getting on the air covering entertainment. Mm -hmm. I had my run, and I don't mind. I am happy stepping aside. There was a day when four, five, seven, and nine, all of us were out reviewing movies and theater and seeing each other. Uh, now there are people on uh, this, an entertainment reporter on seven and nine, and mm -hmm. there's Kevin McCarthy Kevin, on five. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that, and I want to see more of that. And I love what you're doing here on WTOP. Entertainment is, report, is important. Thank you, sir. Part of the culture. Thank I'm you, glad you're doing what you do. Well, we, all of the people you just named, we learn from the best. Arch Campbell. And you're not done yet, sir. No, no, no. <laughs> He's out there. <laughs> Find me on Facebook. All right, Arch, thanks so much. You are welcome. Anytime. Anything for you, Jason. All you right. are very welcome. No, anything for you, Arch. Thanks so much for joining us on Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. <laughs>